Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and today we're going to be talking about CSF shunt complications in children. Now, most shunts are placed for hydrocephalus, and hydrocephalus is essentially an imbalance in the absorption and production of CSF. There's an estimated incidence of about one in every 1,000 children, and there are greater than 125,000 shunts out there in the U.S. alone. Now, you can have obstructive hydrocephalus where the ventricular system is blocked somewhere and CSF accumulates proximal to the blockage, or you can have communicating hydrocephalus where the subarachnoid system, where the CSF is absorbed, is blocked. That fills the entire system with CSF, not just the area proximal to the blockage. And obstructive is more common than communicating. You can have isolated aqueductal stenosis. But the common pathways that these children often present with symptoms such as headache, vomiting, behavioral changes, drowsiness, visual problems, issues with coordination, loss of developmental milestones, rapid increase in head circumference, and sunsetting eyes, a fixed downward gaze. All of these, especially in combination, should prompt the placement of a ventriculoperitoneal, ventriculoatrial, or ventriculopleural shunt. So essentially, a tube from the ventricle to another part of the body to drain off CSF. There's a a large number of different shunt devices, types of tubing and valves, but what's important to remember is that they share common features. You have a proximal portion. This is placed in a ventricle, usually the right, but it could also be inserted into an intracranial cyst or the lumbar subarachnoid space. Then you have a valve, and these can be passive, they can be programmable, they can have different settings. That then connects to the distal portion. Now this is internalized and drains into the peritoneum, the pleura, or the atrium, or externalized as what's called an EVD, an external ventricular drain. This is generally for the management of acute hydrocephalus because the distal portion is actually outside of the patient. Most patients with shunts do well. But there are some complications, including infection, malfunction, over or under drainage, subdural hematoma, multiloculated hydrocephalus, and even seizures. I'm going to focus on infections and malfunctions because you will see them far more commonly in the emergency department. First, infections. Overall, the risk is estimated at about 5 to 15%. These patients have variably present fever but meningeal signs are not often seen because, again, the shunt doesn't necessarily connect with the meninges. Ventriculoperitoneal shunt infections can also present with GI symptoms and peritonitis, and VA shunts can present with endocarditis. Shunt infections are far more likely in the first month after placement and very rare outside of six months. Risk factors include younger age, previous shunt infection, Certain causes of hydrocephalus, like those that happen after purulent meningitis, hemorrhage, or with myelomeningocele, and previous history of shunt revision, especially greater than three revisions. Other risk factors include a less experienced neurosurgeon, more people in the OR during the case, the use of a neuroendoscope in the OR to place the shunt, longer duration of the operation, um, placement of a VA shunt below the T7 vertebral body, or excessive skin preparation like leaving a lot of skin open to the environment in the OR or shaving of the skin. EVD have a higher risk of infection than internalized shunts. Their risk is up to 1 in 5, and there's 10.6 infections per 1,000 catheter days. 
So breaking that down, you essentially get a lot more kids that get infected if their shunt's outside the body, which makes sense. The risk is greatest if an EVD has to be in place greater than five days. So infections of the shunt are usually due to skin flora, more rarely hematogenous spread. You're looking at at least half of them being coag negative staph and a third of these being staph aureus. Other organisms like Cutibacterium, which was formerly Propionobacterium acnes, and Corinobacterium jachium, which I will not even spell for you, are seen as well, and generally these are skin bugs. Most come from the proximal end, though you can see distal site infections as a result of contamination from peritonitis or endocarnitis. Those are going to be seen with gram negatives like pseudomonas, streptococci, and anaerobes, but generally these are much more rare in kids. Diagnosis of a shunt infection requires an organism cultured from the CSF or the following criteria. So if the kid is greater than one year of age, you need to have at least two of fever, headache, meningeal signs, or cranial nerve signs. If you're less than a year of age, you need greater than two of fever or hypothermia, apnea, bradycardia, irritability, and at least one of increased CSF white blood cell count, elevated CSF protein, decreased CSF glucose, organisms seen on a CSF gram stain, organisms cultured from the blood, or a positive non-culture diagnostic test from the CSF blood or urine. CSF is better obtained via shunt tap, which is performed at the bedside generally by a neurosurgeon. You should definitely get a CT or MRI in these cases, and an abdominal ultrasound if the child has any GI symptoms. You'll be looking for a pseudocyst, and I'll talk more about in the malfunction section. Treatment is removal of the shunt and external drainage with replacement once the CSF is sterile for greater than 48 hours. You can replace the kid while they're still on antibiotics. This means parenteral antibiotics for 10 to 14 days. Empiric treatment in kids, vanc and cefotaxime, or ceftriaxone. When the surgeons replace the shunt tubing, they should use antibiotic impregnated tubes because bugs can create a biofilm on the equipment. All right, so let's move on to shunt malfunctions, which you will see as a more common complication in the pediatric ED. Shunt malfunctions are usually due to mechanical failure. In short, this is a plumbing problem. The majority of first failures are due to obstruction at the ventricular catheter, so at the proximal end. The shunt may overdrain, the ventricles shrink, and the tip can get clogged against the choroid plexus. Other causes include shunt migration, XFCSF drainage. 15% are due to fractured tubing. So again, far more due to clogging of the tube than breakage of the tube alone. Shunt malfunctions need to be recognized quickly and managed in the operating room. The median survival of a shunt before need for revision, if it is placed in a patient less than two years old, is actually only about two years. But if it's placed in a child that's older than two, a shunt can last for eight to 10 years. In terms of figuring out which patients have symptoms that are more correlated with shunt malfunctions, a lot of work's been done over the past decade. A study from Peds Emergency Care in 2008 saw that bulging fontanelle, irritability, nausea and vomiting, accelerated head circumference growth, and headache were associated with shunt malfunctions. Children with a shunt malfunction was less likely to be seen in fever and those with seizure alone. Kids with multiple prior revisions had a higher likelihood of shunt malfunction, which kind of makes sense. 
Now, this decision rule underwent prospective validation earlier this year, published in Pediatric Emergency Care from Boyle et al. 146 of 755 ED visits for almost 300 kids had a shunt malfunction, so 19% of their population. Children with ventricular shunt malfunction were more likely to present with headache, nausea and or vomiting, bradycardia, and mental status change. Now, I encourage you all to take a look at the paper, but essentially, patients with shunt malfunctions had various combinations of these symptoms and had higher rates of malfunctions the more of the predictors they had. Now, overall, the test characteristics of the clinical prediction rule um, showed that the sensitivity was 98% and the specificity was only 6%. The negative predictive value, 95%, and the positive predictive value, 20%. So essentially, the decision rule is good at ruling out shunt malfunction. Apparently, this is the year of the shunt because there was also a study, a prospective multicenter cohort, looking at risk factors for shunt malfunction. And 344 out of 1036 patients had a shunt failure, and there were 265 malfunctions and 79 infections. Three factors were independently associated with reduced shunt survival. Age younger than six months at shunt placement, the hazard ratio of 1.6, cardiac comorbidity, which was a new feature discovered in the literature, and endoscopic placement. Factors that were not associated with shunt survival rates were the etiology of hydrocephalus in the first place, where the surgery was done, the type of valve, and surgeon experience and volume. So when you're working up a shunt malfunction, you need a CT of the head, a shunt series, and a neurosurgery consult. Now, the shunt series is a plain radiograph of the skull, neck, chest, and abdomen. You're looking for mechanical breaks, kinks, and disconnections in the shunt. They're most commonly seen in the neck. Remember, 15% of shunt malfunctions may be from fractured tubing. And yes, I'm concerned about the radiation as well, especially in children with recurrent and repeated shunt malfunctions. But the head CT is still the go-to image to look at the ventricles and the proximal portion of the shunt itself. Unfortunately, it's not always diagnostic. The sensitivity ranges anywhere from 54 to 83%, depending on the literature you read. Size of ventricles can help, but in at least a third of cases of shunt malfunction, the CT is non-diagnostic or the vents really haven't changed. This is especially notable in cases of Chiari 2 with myelomeningocele. So, yes, get a CT. Hopefully you have a prior one so that you can pair vent sizes and correlate with symptoms. Ultimately, MRI may replace CT, and we have some protocols now for fast MRI scans, but they're not yet widely available. If children are having GI symptoms and they have a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, you may also want to get an abdominal ultrasound. So a shunt malfunction could occur because of obstruction at the distal end with a pocket called a pseudocyst. Now, this false pocket in the abdomen accumulates fluid and may cause obstruction. So you consider it in any patient with GI symptoms like abdominal pain and vomiting or at the discretion of the neurosurgeon managing the case. Now, in terms of malfunction, what is the value of shunt tap? Well, it can give the neurosurgeon a clue about the pressure in the shunt and give them an idea of what's going on at the proximal portion of the tubing, especially if the CT is equivocal. An opening pressure of greater than 25 centimeters of water is associated with distal obstruction in about 90%. Poor flow is associated with a proximal shunt malfunction. 
Generally, a shunt tap is a 23 or 25 gauge butterfly needle inserted into the reservoir at the side of the valve, and this can be done at the bedside with pain meds or minimal complications. It's contraindicated if there's an obvious skin infection over the shunt site, the patient has a coagulopathy, or you have not yet obtained imaging. So you got to get imaging first before you do a shunt tap. Again, and I can't reiterate this enough, management of the shunt malfunction requires a trip to the operating room. So if you're in a place without a pediatric neurosurgeon, get the child to a place with a pediatric neurosurgeon. Until then, remember the ABCs. Keep the head midline and elevated at 30 degrees. Manage simple things like oxygen, glucose, and temperature. Give mild sedation. Don't let the child become hypotensive. Control severe shivering with paralytics and seizures with anti-epileptic drugs. You may consider 3% saline or mannitol, but these aren't necessarily proven to work in shunt malfunctions. Again, no intervention is more important than a trip to the OR. So have a low threshold for shunt malfunction, especially in the symptomatic child with hydrocephalus. All right, some final take-home points. Shunt infections are far more common in the initial month after placement, and most bacteria in kids are skin bugs. So you'll want to cover with vancomycin and cefotaxime or ceftriaxone. Shunt malfunctions are usually mechanical and often proximal. The workup includes head CT or MRI, shunt series, and immediate neurosurgical consultation. They may elect to do a shunt tap, and or get an abdominal ultrasound for pseudocyst. Well, that's all I've got on CSF shunt complications. Be sure to check out both the decision rule validation article and the prospective multicenter cohort to deepen your understanding of this common and serious problem in the emergency department. As always, I'd love to continue the conversation online at pemblog.com and on Twitter at pemtweets. And go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, this has been Brad Sobolewski for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast.